Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura Mize. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm very excited about today's show. We, I actually didn't have a show last week, so we're coming back after a little hiatus. And today we have a really special guest. Uh, Jennifer Hatfield is here, and she's a speech-language pathologist who specializes in feeding, among other things. And in a minute, Jennifer, you can share with us what the other things are. But today we're talking about feeding issues in toddlers. And I want us to cover as much as we can cover in a whole hour, ranging from those kids that are just picky and that are um, what appears we kind of call a picky eater all the way through that whole from a realm of kids all the way up to the children who have uh dysphagia and who are have a true swallowing disorder and sometimes I think parents and even some professionals can miss subtleties of those things. So today Jennifer has agreed to educate all of us on that whole range of issues around food that so many of us work with, again, as speech-language pathologists and as parents. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And I forgot to say the name of your company is Therapy and Learning Services. And Jennifer, where are you located? I'm lo- located in Northwest Indiana, so the Greater Chicago area is where I serve. But I also do a lot of teletherapy, so I serve as a consultant for many families and therapists, as well as families throughout the state of Indiana. Okay, great. So, tell us. Well, let me just say I discovered Jennifer through just some mutual pages that we both like and participate in on Facebook and through Twitter. And I really like Jennifer's approach to feeding therapy because it's not um, a, an in-your-face, you're going to eat this at all costs, uh, and it's not really what I would consider to be a um, – Oh gosh, I'm not even sure how to word this so people are going to take this correctly. It, you're not you're not really dealing with feeding as being an overall a child is purposefully choosing willfully non-compliant with eating. You have a kinder, gentler, softer approach with that, and so I just want to be sure that we're talking about yes. that today and approaching yes. it. And yes. that's what attracted me so much to what you've written because I totally feel that way about feeding and pretty much every other issue that young children might have. (laughs) So I think we share that common philosophical base, and that's why I liked your stuff so much and why I was so excited that you agreed to be on because I I think that especially with feeding, that we can do so many things in therapy or, again, as as a desperate parent to try to, try to control the calories that go in the right. child's mouth that we can really do it the wrong way. And so I feel pretty confident in saying there are some things that you that you can really mess up uh, when we're looking at, at treating a child with eating issues. So, again, that's why I wanted Jennifer to be honest. I wanted to give that little caveat there so that everyone knows what we're talking about, that we're approaching this from the same 
philosophical starting point. And I don't do a ton of feeding therapy anymore. I shared with Jennifer right before uh, the show started, and I know I've said that on the show before for our long-time listeners. I stopped doing feeding therapy when I really decided I want to have a niche practice and be super great at what I do, and you just can't always be so focused on everything and do a great job. So when I went to that just youngest population and, and feeding was one of the things that I really let go so I could focus on communication. So, again, Jennifer is here to teach all of us about that. All right, now I'm going to let you talk. Now that's that's the most I'm going to talk the rest of the show. Oh, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> I, I, I'm a talker, but I but I hope you'll talk more. <laughs> and and you just... You hit the nail right on the head with everything that you said about my philosophy, and I want to be clear that it's it's my philosophy, but I have learned it from many other great professionals, so I feel very blessed and fortunate that I have been able to learn from some of the greats in the field, and um, so I just want to be clear on that, that right. I'm following a philosophy that, of course, I have made my own with little tweaks, but um, that yeah. its foundation is definitely from some of the greats out there in our field. That's great. All right, so let's talk about the range of children and kind of, you know, the sort of, let's just, why don't you just give us sort of a summary of the kinds of children or the other kinds of issues. And, again, this would be just to especially bring our parents who are listeners up to speed. You know, feeding disorders really, and again, whether we're talking about just a picky eater or a resistant eater or a selective eater, whatever we want to call them, all the way through to the kids that are um, tube-fed, you know, feeding issues I think are pretty common in children with other developmental delays and disorders. Yes, definitely. And I I would like to begin with um, children who have true medical issues that are causing them to have dysphagia or dysphagia. Many of us say it in different ways. I think it depends on where you grew up. It really really does. So I just want to be clear on that because you and I both say it (laughs) differently. So um, there are children who have dysphagia, which is where there's an actual issue with the structure uh, that, you know, the swallowing mechanism, the structure that has the swallow happening. And so children may aspirate um, and take in food into their lungs or liquid into their lungs. So there's either a cause that's structural or maybe there's a neurological condition that's causing their nerves not to fire correctly. Maybe it's um, a musculature issue where they're not strong enough to um, manipulate the food in their mouth. So there are definitely those conditions that, as, as you said, Laura, can be from many, many things, developmental conditions, syndromes, um, injuries, uh, premature birth that cause those true medical issues that lead to that dysphagia. And I think that we don't hear about that very much in the mainstream because that really is um, that, that area that's that's not quite as big, maybe, out in the mainstream. People right. don't know about it. And so as treating right. therapists, we know more about it. So the exactly. other area that I think the majority of your listeners probably will be um, aligning themselves with and that the big controversy is, is surrounding right now are the picky and selective eaters. Right. And I must tell you that even though I refer to many of the children I treat and when you see me talk about things on my Facebook page or a website or blog, you'll see me refer to picky eaters because I know that I'm reaching the people that I need to reach with that term. But one of my pet peeves is that we all think that picky eaters out in the mainstream are the same. 
And so that there's an approach that will fix it, that will be appropriate for each and every one. And right now I'm really trying to educate other other individuals and parents that that's not true. There are picky eaters that we've had either as parents or we've seen, you know, friends, children who are picky eaters, eh, they don't want to eat that carrot one day, eh, they don't really like vegetables, just run-of-the-mill picky eaters. Those are generally those kiddos that have more than 30 foods that they're accepting. They're probably accepting, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 foods, but we as parents say, well, they won't eat eat carrots or they won't eat any vegetables. (laughs) Well, that's run-of-the-mill picky. Yeah, and when you really pin a parent down about that, they don't even really realize how many different foods a child is eating or yeah. accepting, even and they look at it kind of on a day-to-day basis or week-to-week, whereas as a professional, we're going to look over a general, a much, a much more general basis over a broader period of time so that we can really look at that. And my, my experience, Jennifer, as a professional, when when we would use a term picky eater, it's going to be less than like 10 foods, 10 to 15 foods. And that's from what I remember way back when, again, I was really doing a lot of feeding therapy in, in uh-huh. the 90s, and so things have yeah. changed since then. What, what's they your marker? Changed. What do you use? Okay, so use? as I said, those those kind of run-of-the-mill picky eaters or finicky even eaters that I call them, and I have a story that I can share about my own daughter because that is another way that I got so interested in feeding is because my daughter, who is now 13, she was finicky slash picky. So those kids who have more than 30 foods that they accept, um, usually closer to 50, maybe even upwards of 100, but we still think they're kind of picky or just your run-of-the-mill pickies or finicky. Selective eaters, however, will be those kiddos that have fewer than 20 words. And oftentimes, I will see children with fewer than 10 foods that they're accepting. Now, those are are super selective eaters, um, and and those are often children who are our failure to thrive. Um, They're just, they're not gaining weight because they are not taking in enough nutrition. And so they may quite possibly have... Um, a G-tube or something that's helping them along with that to maintain their nutrition growth. Right. Okay, great. So those benchmarks are 20, 30, and 10. So 20 and being the selectives. Right. Okay, super. And that is new information for me. Because I knew that it had changed since the 90s, so I'm glad that you shared. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and our my daughter, our daughter Johnny, uh, my daughter is now just turned seventeen, and she was what we referred to as a picky eater. But then, you know, we look at things differently when it's our own child versus right. when it's a, a child that we're seeing on um, professionally on our caseload. And when I really had to truly write down what she was eating and what food she would routinely consume, and again, not in a day or three days' time, over a broader period of time, she really exceeded that uh, number of foods, although to me as her mom, it felt like she was only eating two or three things. Right, and so right. And it's important not to be objective about it and be able to get a clear picture of what a kid will and, and really run me. And you bring up a good point, and I, I wanted to just um, share also that, you know, when I give those benchmarks, 
those are fine. But again, I really stress with my families and other professionals, please don't get hung up on those numbers, okay? Those are truly just benchmarks because you may have a kiddo that accepts, you know, 20 to 30 foods on average, but they are truly having some big issues with the food, and they may not be a run-of-the-mill picky just because I'm saying, oh, yeah, they have 20 or 30 foods. They may have some pretty strong reactions to new foods coming to the table. And so that's where this gets really muddy for just the general population and maybe even some celebrities who are pushing some, you know, healthy eating tips for picky eaters. They don't right. understand those those muddy areas, and that's where we're doing more harm than good many times. So um, exactly. definitely. And you bring up another good point about about being a parent and, and really truly looking at all of the foods that a child is is accepting over an amount of time Um, because as a parent especially if you're concerned about maybe if your child's a little bit slower with growth and your doctor's saying okay we need to really you know get on this picky eating but they're not giving you anything to go on you're having that that feeling that panic that anxiety so you may not be looking objectively at how many foods your child really is eating because you're only hearing they're not eating enough, and they're not growing right. as they should. So, and many- as a parent, you get really, really scared about that. I mean, our daughter, who, and I don't know if your daughter was this way, but she was really tiny, and so we ne- she never got a diagnosis of failure to thrive or anything like that. But you know, she she was she was kind of a bigger baby, but then didn't really through her preschool years really stayed the same weight for a long time. And, of course, we never really had any health concerns. And actually, a pediatrician, our pediatrician at that point really just chalked it up to she's a toddler, she's a whatever. And she, and let me just say, too, she didn't have any other markers other than she rejected foods quite regularly. And so, of course, my husband, who's not a speech-language pathologist, would say, well, she's just going to sit here till she eats it. She right. just can't get up. She's right. doing all these things and that you 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 think you're going to try as a parent. You think you're going to really crack the whip, and right. the child is just magically going to eat. Um, and that that I don't think ever practice, even when we're looking at with a kid who is just um, choosing not to eat versus those children who have you know the real medical conditions and the real right. um, the concerns and those kinds of things. But the parent, and again, living both sides of that from the professional angle and the parenting angle and having a spouse who didn't agree with me with what our, our approach was not going to be, you know, she, we're going to let her sit here until she eats three bites of mashed potatoes or whatever. You right. know, that's that's kind of hard to live with because he's looking at her and saying she won't eat. We got to fix it. What what are we left to do here? Right. And so I and think a lot of parents still in that position. Yeah. Right. And so many well-meaning parents. I mean, and this is the first thing that I that I work on with my parents is just getting them to understand that you know what it's okay if you if you did that because you were, you were coming at it from an angle that. First of all, you, you weren't educated about that approach, okay? You were just right. doing what your parent heart told you to do because you were wrapped right. up in the, we need to get food in this child. And that's what exactly. worked with us. <laughs> you know, back, I'm not saying it worked, but, you know, that's what our parents did. You that's will not we leave this table yeah. <laughs> until yeah. your plate is clean. So we're feeding our food to the dog, you know. Um right. 
but all kidding aside, it, it is just that natural place where parents go because it's either what was done with them, someone else right. is giving this, them ad- advice and they don't know where to turn because there's not a lot of good information out there. Ah. And and lastly, it's coming from a, a place of anxiety, which many of my families ah. have. So it's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope, <laughs> and that's why I'm so passionate yeah. about it. And as you said, it's that you were on both sides of it as a therapist and a parent, I I was as well with my daughter, and no, to answer your question, she was not failure to thrive, but she had some pretty strong sensory reactions to food, um, in particular with the smelling. But my son, who is now 17, was um, actually failure to thrive, but his was when he was a newborn. And um, that, again, I take myself back there many times when I'm dealing with my families because I remember as a new mom and feeling like such a – um, a failure, I'm going to say, which right. is oftentimes what a lot of the the big names in, in feeding therapy will talk about is that, you know, our number one job, we're told as, as a mom, right, is to be able to right. nourish and feed our child. And um, so you've got that whole issue, too, when your child is not taking in what they should. So it's there's just a lot that we have to consider. So I am so glad to be talking about it with you and your listeners today. Okay, so when you – let's say, what, what what do you want to talk about first? Those children, why don't you just give us some scenarios? The children who come in, and you've already talked about you try to address it with the parents and say, mm-hmm. that's okay if you've done some things that you feel like knowing now what you knew then, you can't go back and change that. Right. And so you get parents kind of on board with it doesn't really matter what happened before. We're going to move forward and do the things that we know to be more effective with handling these things. So how do you how do you start with kind of your evaluation process, the things that you talk about with parents to kind of walk us through some of those things. And okay. and two, I do I and I also want you to address, Jennifer, that every kid is different. Yes. Every circumstance. So these are not going to this is not a cookie cutter approach and a mom right. Or a therapist isn't going to be able to listen to this and say, okay, I'm going to apply this to every single child I now see with feeding issues and know that it's going to be exactly the same every single time. It does not happen that way with feeding just like it doesn't happen with a kid with a communication delay. Right, and that's where we have to be so careful because even us as therapists with the training, sometimes we get so on board with one particular program and we've seen it work that that becomes our program. And we really can't. We have to be holistic thinkers, and I'm a, I'm a holistic thinker. I take bits and pieces from each program because that's what works for individual families. Right. Um, and it may not work for one child to you know, ask them, hey, you know, let's eat. Do you want to kiss this food? You know, that might not be appropriate for one family or one child. That may be perceived as pressure by them, but for another, that may be a way to get them closer to accepting the food. So we have to be careful. We're not putting up such strict boundaries that we're cutting out parents while we're trying to help them, you know. So um, I definitely want to focus on this picky selective portion here, and I'll walk you through the evaluation and and treatment process here, because no matter if you're a run-of-the-mill picky eater or if you have someone who's more on the selective side, this will look generally the same. And so with an evaluation, generally I start with a phone consultation. So we can kind of, you know, hammer out that that core food list, which is um, I learned through food chaining is to look at the food chaining approach, um, to look at the core food list. And oftentimes that's right where... I would say maybe about 10% of my families 
begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> they're really yeah. accepting more than I thought they were. And so then right. I steer them more towards maybe some of the other educational, you know, programs that are out there or my own, you know, webinars and things like that. So right. we start right. with the phone consultation. If we get through that core food list and we truly have an issue where we're dealing with a, a true picky, finicky eater or definitely a selective eater, then we'll do, if we can, if I'm close to the family, then we'll do either, um, you know, videotaped, consultation where I'm watching the family and the mealtime, or I will do in-person consultation where we're actually going through and making sure that there's no medical issue, um, you know, right. that could be causing this. But generally, by they already know that if there's a, a medical issue, and I'm just strictly right. dealing with the food intake. So we go through, right. you know, the food, the core food list, and then we, we begin to discuss just what their natural routine is. You know, do they have a, a mealtime and snack time schedule, which is a big one again, but a lot of families find that they don't. And so that can be part of the problem is that there's no real right. clear boundaries around those mealtimes and snack times. So the child's grazing all day, not really hungry when mealtime comes. And right. so that's a and whole I think other a, area. And I think a lot of parents do that too out of desperation because they say, okay, well, right. she didn't eat what I offered for breakfast, but now it's 10.30 and she seems so hungry. And so, you know, or 9.30 or, you know, whatever time, and they're just feeling desperate to pump in calories when the child seems like he may or she may be more likely to eat rather than looking at scheduling and really being pretty purposeful about what their um, routines are going to be. Right, and so there's a lot, of, a lot of interviewing going on at this point. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. not a lot of hands-on yet because much of the picky and selective eating really can be dealt with through this consultation because we find a lot of little things like that, the scheduling, or maybe mm-hmm. they're offering a lot of drinks in between. Maybe this is a child yeah. that's walking around constantly with a sippy cup, or maybe it's a child who is tube-fed or a child who is using one of the nutritional supplements to bring up their weight, but at the same time, it makes them feel like we feel when we've had a, a milkshake and then somebody puts food in front of us and says, here, eat this, we don't want to because we're full. So there can be right. many issues that I find out and, and hammer out with mm-hmm. the parents just from our consultation. So that's that's a snapshot of what an evaluation might look like um, with, like I said, the, the run-of-the-mill picky or selective. If we're doing... So- hands-on, then I'm going to look also at the oral motor, of course, which I can do um, through teletherapy as well. Okay. Let's talk about what an ideal kind of schedule would be for a kid. If you were looking at just overall general recommendations Mm -hmm. that if the therapist is listening, and we have tons of new therapists who listen to this show, and so if they haven't if if they don't have a good resource for that or a good reference for what a and, and perhaps a new therapist may not have even had the joy of parenting a child of her own right. she doesn't really know what a, a real schedule might look like. What are the kinds of things, what recommendations do you make about snacks and meals and those kinds of things? Okay, and this is where I may differ from some of the other professionals who are out there right now. Um, and that's okay. They, 
Yeah, and that's okay because again, um, you know, even for myself, I I'm going to tell you what I my recommendation is, but I may run across a kid in a family that this may not work for, and so then I'm sure. going to you know change switch gears. But in general, mm-hmm. most children, most most toddlers, should look at a three meal two snack a day schedule. Okay. Now that may look okay. different for many families based on schedule and school and child. So, but generally that's a good rule of thumb, three meals, two snacks. Okay. And And so, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's okay. You want to make sure, especially when you're dealing with the picky and selective eaters who may not have much of an appetite, truly not having much of an appetite, right? You may want Mm -hmm. to think about the schedule to be, you know, that you're offering food Every couple hours, every two or three okay. hours, again, depending on your child and their needs, um, because then if they don't eat so much at breakfast, maybe they're not hungry when they get up, especially my kiddos who take right. in nutrition overnight that are G-tube fed, or maybe before bed they have one of their Boost shakes or PediaSure shakes. They may wake up and not be very hungry, especially if they haven't had their bowel movement yet. We have to talk about that <laughs> so because that fits in. Um, nobody yeah. likes to talk about that, but it's true. Um, and so maybe they're not a big breakfast eater, so they may pick. But if you offer them their snack a couple hours later, they may be ravenous. So we need to make sure then that's why we're on somewhat of a schedule so that they can expect that, that that's going to come. Okay. All right, that sounds good. And snack, Okay, so every two to three hours you're going to be looking for an opportunity to present that food. And so if a kid is eating more... Okay, and so if a child is eating more frequently than that, even if it's just his one little bowl of dry cereal that he wants filled at all times, no matter what, that could be a contributing factor as to why we're not seeing more intake at mealtime, right? Exactly, and I would say, great point that you brought up here, you need to be a good gauge of of what's going on because you may start out to where you have a child who you need to be offering those those meals and snacks every two to three hours because they're not eating enough and not taking in enough calorie. But then as you proceed through that schedule, you notice that they are eating a little bit more, and now all of a sudden they're wanting to graze all the time. Then you need to back that off a little bit and and either offer smaller portions or you push them off about 15 minutes, then a half an hour, and see if Mm -hmm. you can get to a really nice three-meal, two-snack-a-day schedule. So that's and I've had that happen a lot because parents yeah. get scared and right. they think, well, if she, and I did this with my own daughter, well, if she's not going to eat at meals, I have to have her eat something. And if she wants to eat the whole bag of goldfish today, that's okay with me because she right. at least ate the calories, you know, right. so we do all these things and may not even be realizing that we're compounding that problem by how we're parenting or how we're looking at it. And so we need to be changing our behavior to make right. that and, work. Right, and again, better. exactly, you hit the nail on the te- on the head, but again, you may start at one point, and, and the recommendation right. may be one thing, but as you proceed and as you grow through, the, through a program, you'll need to tweak it and adjust, and that's where having someone like myself as a, as a consultant to touch base with can help you continue to move forward. Oftentimes, we put that information out there or a family will read it or they'll touch base with a therapist and they'll give them this this program to follow, but there's no follow-up. And so the family does this, but then they don't make as much progress because now we have a grazer. So now we're still not getting <laughs> because, 
you know, they, they're just not still taking in the amount of calorie that they should. Right. Okay, so what comes next? After okay. we look at the schedule. Okay, go ahead. Um, so after we look at the schedule on the core food list and I get a better idea of how the family dynamic works, some families don't even have sit-down meals, and so we may address that. Or maybe everybody eats something different, and so we address that. And I can talk about that in the therapeutic approach next, which um, then we would base that therapy on the child and the family's needs. Right. And I'm big on stressing right. that family because treatment for feeding disorders must involve the family it just absolutely oh, and I so agree with that I so agree with that and sometimes when we do see things like in the mainstream media and parenting blogs and things like that they really will have some um just some blanket advice that just will not work for every situation especially when a feeding disorder is to the point where we're going to call in professional help and right. so it is really good to think about approaching this not from just looking at what the child is doing but what else is going on around the child and again those particular uh, circumstances that might make feeding hard for a family when you have a kid that's just not going to just not going to eat whatever whatever mom had been accustomed to doing and you've got to really look at that too right Right, absolutely, and making sure that everybody's on board and that we're right. even involving if the child is in preschool or has a babysitter, that we're addressing the concerns that may be happening there as well um, because right. you could be doing all of this at home, but then if yeah. you, um, you know, if your child is going to grandma's or another babysitter or they're going to preschool and the preschool and the other caretakers are not following the same approach, that child's conflicted then. And, uh, you know, they're they're getting all these mixed messages, and so they may eat better at one place. And just a little side note here, many times in the evaluation process through my questioning of parents and working with them, we find that children, they'll say to me, well, he or she, they, they eat so much better over at the friend's house or over at my mother's yeah. house. And oftentimes we can find a reason why, and it may be that they're not feeling pressure it may right. be the food that's being served. It may be just the time of day. It may be their right. chair. I mean, there's just so many things <laughs> that it could be. So that's why we really have to spend an awful lot of time on the front end with that interview process and just really trying to get to the meat of the matter. So, Right. And that's what makes this job so fun is yes. that all that detective work and all that yes. diagnostic stuff that we yes. get to do, which really, again, if you're if you're doing, if you're looking for something that's just a very general disorder with every kid, that is just never the case. You've got to do the homework and get get all the particulars for every individual child to make sure that you have the full story right. and understand all the different dynamics. Right. Exactly. So. Um, after after that, we get to that point, then we move into more of the therapeutic. Uh, part of it, which may involve me working with the family personally. It may involve me working, um, you know, with consultation through online means or through videotape, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and therapy, it, 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 there's so many things we could talk about here. But in general, I <laughs> yeah, I know, and I'm trying to make sure that, you know, my, my excitement and my passion that I stay focused here. But in general, we're going to address any of those those things that we we 
found that during the evaluation process, it, does the child seem to have maybe some reflux that we need to, you know, make a recommendation to a professional who can help them with that? Maybe they're um, what. And incidentally, what I look for in a child who may have some reflux that mm -hmm. um, is undiagnosed is a child who likes to drink a lot okay. because what they're okay. doing is putting out the fire. So if you've ever yeah. had heartburn. <laughs> You know mm -hmm. that it I'm burns like the dickens. <laughs> and all you want to do is drink. It makes it feel better. So that can be a red flag for me as a therapist that we could possibly be dealing with reflux, and that could be part of the feeding disorder. And often when we begin to treat that reflux, then the feeding begins to improve. Now, there may be such a poor foundation with food laid there that our therapy then works on what I call food literacy, which is just learning about food and not ever asking them to take a bite. Because if I had okay. to give one big piece of advice today for therapists and families and other professionals out there, don't ask kids to take a bite or try it because that's pressure. If they want to try it, they will try it. It becomes all about the food then, and feeding therapy right. really isn't about the food with our pickies and our selectives. They need to get back to trusting people around food and trusting food, whether they've had a choking episode that caused them to not trust food at the, or be at the table, whether they've had a well-meaning parent or another professional who has pressured them in one way or another, not even knowing what they're doing. Take a bite. Just right. try it. Right. If you take two bites of this, I'll give you a sticker or you'll get your right. goldfish then. <laughs> you know, it's well-meaning, but it, it, right. it makes ch children not trust. And so, exactly. that's where, yeah, so that's my big thing. And all of my treatment is about rebuilding that trust. And so exactly. I'm a big big follower of um, Ellen Satter, who uses what's called the Division of Responsibility, and mm -hmm. also of uh, Marsha Dunkline, who does the Get Permission mm -hmm. approach. And I love the name of that, Get Permission, because too many times we, we don't give kids the, the chance to give us permission. We just tell them what to do, or we tell them, right. we want you to take a bite, instead of having that trust around the food. So... Um, I just uh, share a little bit about the division of responsibility. Um, and Ellen Satter has a great website out there with so many free resources, and I use that often with my clients and my families. And the main idea of the division of responsibility is that many of our families become short order cooks with a picky and selective right. eater, <laughs> because, like you gave the example of, well, they ate all the goldfish. So I'm yeah. going to make whatever my child wants if they turn up their nose and throw a fit and say, I don't want that chicken. I it's want so my peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. You know that your child needs to gain weight, so what do you do? Well-meaning, your heart's in the right place, you run into the kitchen and you make a sandwich and bring it back to the table. So everybody else is eating the chicken and, you're, and, you yeah. know, and your son or daughter is sitting there eating the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Everybody's happy. Well, we need to do what's called the division of responsibility, which is to make sure that you're not doing that. How do we do that, though? Well, you make sure that there is always something on the table that your picky eater will eat. Now, this can be water, milk, mm -hmm. bread, crackers. Make sure that there's always something that they will eat. 
every single time you put it in front of them on the table. And if it's bread and they want to have four or five pieces of bread, then that's what they have. They are sitting and enjoying the meal, and they're learning that nobody's going to ask me to put anything I don't want in my mouth. And right. So, and so what do you do with the parents who are really resistant to that, Jennifer, and who would say, because you, I'm sure you encounter that like I do. every single day. Yeah, I do. When you're working with parents, and so what do you say to the parents that are saying, well, then guess what? She's only going to eat that. She's only going to drink that. What do we do then? Because I I can hear parents right now thinking that. Yes, and I hear it all the time. Um, And I need, this is when I just say, you need to trust me. Please just trust me. Let's give it two weeks because that's the other piece of advice. Picky and selective eating does not go away in, in two weeks. It, there's no magic bullet that treats it, okay? Exactly. But we begin to take small steps that will move us toward bigger steps and greater right. things if we just trust one another and, and are patient and move forward. So to that parent, I would say, first of all, trust me. And secondly, I would say, you're right. They may only eat that for the next two weeks. It may be three weeks. It may be a month. But that's right. where you you take some of those favorite foods. It's not always going to be going to be bread that you have on the table, but you may begin to realize over that time period. And this is what I say to them: just watch their behavior at the table, because remember, it's not always about the food. So even right. if they're only wanting to enjoy that bread every single night at dinner for the next two weeks, watch and tell me if you see them more relaxed if they're coming to the table willingly if they're not having behavioral issues at the table, tell me that your family's having a more pleasant family meal and experience at the table or when you go out to eat because mm-hmm. that will be the proof then that they will realize that this is this is okay. And then they'll begin to, oftentimes the kids will begin to explore other foods a little bit more, new foods mm-hmm. that are on the table for them because they've realized nobody's asked me to do anything with that food, put it in my mouth. Right. Smell it, kiss it. So, right. And so as yeah. a therapist, we have to set that up with parents so that that's actually progress. Right. That, not, that having a child come to the table without dragging them and, you know, every duct tape them on the seat or something. And please know that I'm being facetious when I say right. that. Right. I don't, I don't right. know if you know my personality, but no, that right. is a joke, people. Yeah. So, but the, the whole, and that that's progress. And that it not being, not crying or all of the other things, all of the other negative behaviors that we've seen, we see a decrease in that. We need to be super thrilled even if even if we're not seeing them add 10 new foods in three days. You know, right. we have to be really realistic when we're looking at our progress in the therapist. We have to really tell parents that and set that up and let them get ready to celebrate that success rather than just having eating being our our short-term goal when so for so many of those kids it's really a lot it's something we have to think about as a long-term goal absolutely and um Oh, I lost my train of thought. But um and and that's what oh now I know. <laughs> I get so excited, Laura. I get I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, Oh gosh, that's great. Now I know something else I wanna say. But that is part of my evaluation process and I always ask parents, 
you know, what are your goals? Certainly it's not about me. It's not about what my goals are. I'm, I'm the guide for these families. And for some families it may just be that I had a family recently when I asked them this question, what are your goals? What do you really want to get out of feeding therapy? And she said, I want him to be able to eat um, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at the school that they have prepared when he doesn't like what's being served. Because this was a big deal because he was very picky. He didn't like what was being served at his preschool. But if they made him a peanut butter sandwich, like many schools do if you don't like what's being served, he wouldn't Uh eat it because he it wasn't what he was used to at home. So that's right. what our goal was. So what does right. success look like to you? That's what I ask the family. And mm-hmm. many times it is not necessarily about the food. So for those families right. who scoff initially at, oh, my gosh, Jennifer, I can't believe you're, <laughs> this is part of the program, I remind them of remember now what, what your goal is. And that's how right. we're going to get there because it may be that you want to have a nice family meal. So this is how we're going to get there. So it's it's okay, just education, education, education. Right. And I think parents do have to even really focus on what they want. And so that's an important part of this whole process, and especially for our therapists who are listening who haven't had as much experience, it's really getting a parent to nail down <laughs> Mm-hmm. what their expectations are so that you can, and sometimes it's a matter of helping a parent adjust those expectations. Exactly. And saying, you know, that, that, again, that might be our long-term goal for your child. Right. The things right. That need to happen first. And I find that valuable no matter what we're treating a child for is that we have to look at that and explain that to parents so that they recognize success when they see it. Exactly. They're not going to be as on board as we need them to be. All right. So keep going. Keep going. Um, And that's important for us, for therapists as well, right, that we can see those small steps because I know sometimes I feel overwhelmed when I have a child who is, you know, eating maybe five foods and and I really need to help this family so that this child can sustain their weight and grow. Um, So I myself also have to look at those small steps. So, um, so, So that's one part of the therapeutic process. And, of course, it would be much different if we had, you know, things, musculature, oral motor things that we were dealing with or other medical conditions. And there are many, many medical things that can cause picky eating, like the reflux and even constipation. That is the second most common place that I go is to ask about their child's, you know, intake and out (laughs) output. Right, right. Because if if you're constipated and you're little, and you're not going to want to eat. There's no room in there. Your tummy hurts. Exactly. Your tummy hurts. And so there's many avenues that we go with that as well um, that we would treat. So, But if we we know that those aren't the issues, then we're going to learn how to have some fun around food, and I call it food literacy. And there's many ways to do that. But we're not now again there's there are there are some programs and Marsha Dunkline with her get permission approach actually does move into an area where she's doing food literacy she calls it food academics too where they're learning about the food and they're playing with the food they may be doing um you know they may learn about the many different colors of apples and where they grow they may cut them open they get the juice on their fingers they talk about how mm-hmm. it feels They may actually do crafts with them. They may stack the apples, Mm -hmm. all sorts of great stuff. At certain points in that treatment, 
you may actually begin to ask, would you like to give that apple a kiss? I'm going to give that apple a kiss. And so as the therapist or parent, you model it, but you never force the child and you never put it in a way that is going to make them feel pressured. If you say, would you like to maybe try that? And they say, nope, you say, okay, and we just go on and we do something else. Because what's happening when you're not looking is that that juice is running onto their fingers as they're exploring this new food. And one of these times they're going to get an itch on their face and they have to reach up and scratch it, and guess what happens? They smell the food, they may taste a little bit of that juice, and not once has anyone stuck something in their mouth without permission, nor has anyone asked them, do you want to take a bite or do you want to try this? They've done it all on their own, and so they realize as they're having this fun and nobody's asking them to do that, but they're exploring the food, that, hey, this smells pretty good. This smells like something else that I like, so it might not be as scary. And that's how we get in that back door. And it is so fun to see a child get to that point and so amazing to see when the light bulb goes on for the family that just learning and playing with food and and becoming more food literate actually gets them to eat more. (laughs) And nobody ever asks them to take a bite. It's amazing. And foods multiply. So So it's I know just from talking to you and from reading your your information what your opinion is about programs that take a, a, a very different approach, more of an ABA approach, mm-hmm. where uh, it's it's almost uh, punitive yes. if a child yeah. isn't feeding. And I want you just to address that a little bit for moms who are on the fence about that or who may have or therapists who have to talk with the parent about why those approaches aren't philosophically what you would recommend. I was going to say aren't as successful, you know, that's how I feel, of course, but how would you address that? If you were giving advice to therapists who were coaching parents and who are really on the fence, like, well, I read about this other lady who's, Mm-hmm. taking a very different approach. So what would you say about that, Jennifer? Wow, this is a big question, Laura. <laughs> um, I get this question a lot, and I actually have treated a, a little a little boy, and I'm still in touch with mom because we may be working together again, and he moved from, from my program to an ABA program, not just for not for feeding, but for other right. communication. And they, they right. began to work on the feeding. And I guess I did such a great job of educating her that this was unco- an uncomfortable area for her. And I don't mean that right. I'm glad she's uncomfortable, but I'm glad that I, right. I my, my philosophy got, got through to her. She was uncomfortable with that. Now, having said that, I do want to just kind of give this disclaimer that if you have a child who's being successful with ABA and you truly are just wanting more foods to be accepted by your child, then please don't don't take what my philosophy is right this minute and, make, and hear that I'm saying that's wrong because, again, right. it's not wrong, okay? It's just the philosophies are so different. Right, you right. Can, you can get children to try more food, okay? But my philosophy is, and and I truly think everybody's philosophy should be, but don't we want kids to enjoy the food too? Because what if if your program says, well, we're going to have your kids eating 10 new foods by the time 30 days is up. Okay, 
But do they like that? Because I've seen video that's been on, I don't know, MSNBC or the Today Show. Or sure, they're showing some of these feeding programs, and the child is taking a bite of that pepperoni pizza, but they're chewing it and their eyes are all scrunched up and they're not wanting to swallow or they're washing it down with water every single time because they just want to be done with it. Okay, we can count that as we have your child accepting another food, but did they enjoy that? And are we really and truly laying down a good foundation for eating and health and long-term success with food? No, we're not. And that's where we need to go back to, the foundation. I'm sorry? And it just breaks my heart when I see those kinds of things. Mine too. Yeah. And when I, you know, or when someone will write me about it or say or comment, you know, that crying is a necessary part of feeding therapy, I don't believe that. I don't either. It happens sometimes, but. It happens, but that just that it's acceptable and, you know, it's, uh, you know, like yeah. even I just I just can't even really talk about it and say all that I would love to say if this were a one-on-one conversation. Right. Um, but it's I, I don't believe that I don't I believe it does happen and I believe there are very real reasons that children respond in that way. But I just can't ever imagine not thinking that would be a very big deal for a child to respond that way in therapy and me just to be pretty casual about it and say, well. Too bad. That's just right. what's going to happen. I will never feel like that's okay. Right, and I don't. I don't want to watch a child, you know, gagging as they're as they're swallowing this food down because it's so horrendous to them. But they're going to accept this food so that they get this sticker or they get this, you know, whatever it is that we've promised them. I can't do that because I the food chaining. When I took my training through food chaining, and one of the stories that they shared was. Picture, there's a food that, that each one of us doesn't like, right? Even if we love food like I do. I'm a true foodie, and that I think is another reason I'm passionate about this because I just right. I want people, children, to find foods that they enjoy, you know, because food right. should be enjoyed and nourish our bodies at the same time. But Sherry said, think of a food, your most horrendous food that you can imagine eating, and then think about it from the perspective of the child. Somebody comes and straps you into your high chair, and for me it would be oysters. Sets a plate of oysters in front of you and says, first of all, that you have to touch these, and then says that you have to take a bite and swallow it. What would you do? Well, I can tell you for sure that I would probably gag, and if somebody made me take one in my mouth, I probably would would vomit. Now think about many of the children that we see for feeding therapy. We're putting right. these foods in front of them that we think they should eat. And right. it's just maybe not, they're not ready for it yet. But at the same time, maybe they really truly don't like green beans. And so right. we forget when a child's picky and selective that they still have a choice about this, even exactly. if they're not gaining weight. It's still a choice what they put in their mouth. And that's right. the beauty of this division of responsibility and get permission approach and my philosophy is that it's okay if they don't like green beans and you do and your your spouse does and everybody else in the family does. Maybe they just don't. So let's try a different right. vegetable or a different food. Yeah, yeah. And so that brings you to food chaining, how you look at that core diet mm-hmm. and you figure out what what are your next steps with that, Jennifer. Is that where we would be in the process? 
Absolutely, and that would be one piece of the puzzle for most of my families is we're going to look at that food list, and the food chaining ladies are wonderful. Please look them up on Amazon. They have a wonderful book that is very parent-friendly, and they are also on Facebook. Um, I truly believe in, in their their philosophy and their programming, so, so definitely look it up. In a nutshell, food chaining is looking at that core food list and seeing if there are similarities to the foods that your child is enjoying. Maybe they've cut out all meats. Well, that could be for many reasons. It could be because they just don't have the strength yet orally to be able to chew and swallow those foods, and so that's another therapeutic avenue we would need to explore. Maybe you find that they're chip lovers. They love chips and crackers and everything crunchy. Well, then mm-hmm. that's the way that we go. We would explore, let's say, if they uh, love crackers. Ritz mm-hmm. crackers have many different flavors that you can explore. So you stay within that safe zone of their Ritz cracker that they love and the crunch that they love, but that's how you explore new flavors. So you stay mm-hmm. at that core, but you branch out very slowly with those new flavors. Um, and it's more right. detailed than this, but I'm giving Sure. You know, the nutshell approach. Sure. Yeah. Another area that is common is we'll see kids that love breaded meats, chicken nuggets, you know, chicken nuggets. breaded anything. Yeah. <laughs> and so what I'm going to pick to chain from there is breading. And so we mm-hmm. may actually get to vegetables because we can put a breading on that vegetable right. further down right. the line. But we, if we have a kiddo that's accepting any kind of chicken nugget, they'll eat a chicken strip, they'll eat a chicken nugget, well, then the first place I'm going to recommend that we go in therapy or for the family is to try other similar breaded meats like a pork tenderloin. A pork tenderloin mm-hmm. is very um, soft and easy to chew mm-hmm. and very similar in flavor to chicken. So you would start there. So that's right. the idea of food chaining. And with other, when when I did this and saw children that I worked with with this, sometimes it's just buying a different brand. And, you, and parents wouldn't think about, you know, he will only eat a McDonald's chicken nugget. And so you're expanding maybe just a different kind of chicken nugget so that there's a different just experience there. Um, our daughter loved goldfish crackers and for us it was really buying an off-brand kind of goldfish cracker and seeing if she would eat that and sometimes just those tiny little steps she'll start to see a glimmer of success yes just introducing those kinds of really tiny tiny changes Absolutely, and within that, that's a great suggestion, Laura, but within that also you have to be very careful, and that's where the guidance of a feeding specialist becomes important as well because you may may want to try a different type of chicken nugget, but that particular child may not be ready for that. They could be so selective that do not change anything about this, so it may be more that... Maybe we use a different, instead of picking them up with our fingers this time, our McDonald's chicken nuggets, maybe we're going to use a fun fork or something like that. So you can create that change without causing them too much stress. And so, um, yeah, and that's one of the classes that I teach. One of the webinars I do uh, is actually a free webinar that will be up again on my website soon, is creating a flexible feeding environment. And those are ways that new parents can begin to keep things flexible so their kids maybe won't become picky is that you make sure that you're not becoming so brand specific or only serving their lunch on the Thomas the Tank Engine plate or only serving milk in the blue cup and juice in the red cup. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah. Right. Because we love our routines. I was one of them. I loved my, you know, it made everything easy. The princess plate is for breakfast, and, you know. <laughs> Tell us about your webinars, Jennifer. We only have a few minutes, and I feel like I could probably talk to you for, oh, five, six more hours about yes, this. Yes, I know. I, I would love to do that, and I would I would welcome <laughs> the opportunity anytime, Laura. So, um, well, I have an upcoming webinar here. As I said, I do offer many free webinars. This one, actually, there is a fee for it. You can find the information on my website, which is therapyandlearningservices.com, under our online learning academy. And this webinar is about food literacy for the picky eater. So it's what to do while you're gaining that trust and getting back to the table. So we'll talk a lot about you know, what food literacy is, and I'll give you 10 activities that you can do, much like what I suggested with the apples a little while ago. But the beauty of it is, too, is that I have created an, a workbook, an e-workbook, that will be downloadable with the um, when you register, and you'll use it during the webinar to take notes and fill in some information, but it will also be handy afterwards because you'll have a copy of all of those activities that I suggest to getting your kids, you know, trying some new food. So because when we do activities where we're not asking them to put the, the food in their mouth, that actually counts as a food exposure. And so we know the rule of thumb that many pediatricians say is, oh, they need 10, 15, 20 exposures to a new food before they'll try it. Well, what we know as therapists is that sometimes that can be 50 to 100 exposures. For, no now, that's kidding. extreme for some picky yeah. and selective eaters. In general, it's, right. it's just twice as much um, as for the you know run-of-the-mill picky eater. But food right. exposures can be done through play and learning with food. Right. It doesn't have to necessarily be in the mouth. Right. And so that your webinar is even appropriate for therapists too, right, Jennifer? Who Absolutely. are looking for some, who have some knowledge gaps and who are looking for some really practical, family-friendly treatment strategies, that would be a great way for them to get some new ideas too. Absolutely, and it's on Tuesday, May 21st at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 to 11.30 a.m., but anyone who registers gets the link and um, for the recording and then also the workbook. So That sounds great. And do you think you could post that on or give – Give me the link to your website and uh, post that on Teach Me to Talk Facebook page so that our listeners can get that information and not have to work too hard for that. Would you mind sure, doing absolutely. that? absolutely. No, it would be my pleasure. Thank you for letting yeah. me do that and announce it. I appreciate that. I'm just really well, excited about this information to get out there. So, um, I think it's great information. And no kidding, I get... Mostly questions, of course, about communication since that's what I do. But so many of our same little guys who are late talkers and who have may or may not have a diagnosis beyond that also struggle with feeding. And there are so many therapists who are looking for new ideas. And I love today that you presented some um, of your favorite resources and the feeding experts that you've learned from. And I adore any speech pathologist who says, I take little bits and pieces from different <laughs> 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 programs because that's how I work too. And so thank you so, so, so much for all of your information today. And I'd love for you to come back so that we can talk about this again and again. <laughs> I could talk to you about it forever because it's so interesting and so um, much a part of what we do for the families that we work with. Yes, well, thank you for having me so much. I appreciate it, and it was a pleasure. 
Thank you. And I'm going to talk to you after the show and see when we can book you again. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much to uh, our listeners today, and you'll be able to find Jennifer's information on Teaching the Talk Facebook page. That's all for this week. Bye.